Hi, welcome to Epicenter. My name is Sebastian Cuccio. So this week, we've got two bonus episodes for you, both of which were recorded at the Interchain Conversations Conference, which took place in Berlin last week on June 13th and 14th. It was organized by the Interchain Foundation and Cosmos. And this is part one of a two-part bonus series. So you'll notice that we haven't done bonus episodes in a really long time. In fact, the last time we did this was back in 2014. But this is something that you should expect to see more of. And as always, we're happy to hear your feedback. This was a special occasion because for a very brief moment before the event, all five of us Epicenter hosts were together. And Brian, Mayher, Sonny, and I were all at the conference and participated in the hackathon, which took place over the weekend. We got to connect with a lot of you, our listeners, which is always extremely gratifying and just emerge ourselves in the Cosmos ecosystem for a couple of days. It was also special because it was the first time that we saw a big part of the Cosmos community come together under one roof. I think people had the sense that it marked the beginning of something significant. And for a lot of people, including myself, it was the first time that we were getting to meet a lot of the folks with whom we talk on Twitter and forums and Telegram and just put a face to the Twitter avatar for the username. So in this episode, you'll hear the first edition of Epicenter Live, which we recorded on stage at the event. Our discussion was centered around blockchain interoperability and what a multi-blockchain ecosystem could look like in the future. We addressed topics like application composability and the different approaches between Ethereum, Polkadot, and Cosmos. And we talked about things like, you know, how we should expect chains to compete in the future as they potentially become more generalized. And at one point, Mayer goes off on a tangent and makes a great analogy comparing blockchains to evolutionary biology. That thing was great. Anyway, I hope you'll enjoy it because it was a lot of fun and we definitely plan to do this and hope to do this in the future. In the second part of the episode, you'll hear my Q&A with Jay Kwan, the founder of Cosmos. So I sat down with Jay at the start of the event for about 30 minutes to kick things off and set the stage for what was about to come over the next few days. I hope you'll enjoy these sessions and be sure to check out part two of this bonus series, which is also available now. So with that, here's Epicenter Live in Berlin. Up next, we have Epicenter doing a live recording of their beautiful podcast. We got Sebastian and we got Brian coming up to the stage next. Here we go. And Sonny. And Mayher. <laughs> it's fine. Thank you. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first edition of Epicenter Live. I mean, it's live. It's kind of live. I mean, it's live because we're doing it in front of you guys. It's not live streamed or anything like that. Um, but it will be uh, released on the on the feed uh, in the next couple of days, probably next week. So, you know, we, we wanted to do this because, you know, for the first time in, in, in a while, uh, most of us, at least, were going to be here at the event. Uh, unfortunately, Felica could not be here um, because of other engagements. But... Uh, this is something that I think we would like to continue doing um, when we travel to events. So we already have plans to do this perhaps in the next few months. Um, so it's very much experimental. And the way that we'll be doing this is, and we've got a couple top, like list of topics here that we want to cover, and we want to leave it open to you guys uh, also to interact, uh, ask questions, comment. You know, we don't have all the answers or all the knowledge. Uh, a lot of the knowledge is also in this room. So there is a mic going around. Um, so if you have anything to say or anything to comment on during this discussion, just 
know, raise your hand, get the mic, and intervene. Um, so for those who don't know Epicenter, Epicenter has been uh, in the space for over five years. Uh, obviously, we're a podcast. And you have four of the hosts here on stage today. So Meher Roy, Sunny Argerwal, Brian Fabian Crane, and myself, Sebastian Couture, and the fifth host, Frédéric Ernst, who couldn't be here. Um, just before we get started, a couple disclaimers. Obviously, as most of you know, a lot of people here on the stage, all of us are atom holders. We also participate in various uh, Cosmos projects or companies related to Cosmos. Uh, and Cosmos is also a sponsor of Epicenter. So I just wanted to get that out there. If you didn't already know that. <laughs> so um, the first topic on, I mean, so the broad topic today is blockchain interoperability. We are here at the Interchain Conference. Um, and so, you know, the first thing that maybe to get things started off is sort of lay out the blockchain interoperability landscape. And so, you know, today's event is obviously about Cosmos and the, and the Interchain Foundation, but, you know, there are other projects out there. And um, within these projects, there are questions around how these projects will interoperate within themselves, but also amongst each other. Um, so starting off, you know, what is to you guys sort of the, the interoperability landscape look like uh, outside of the projects being discussed here at this conference? Go ahead. Um, okay, I mean, so I guess, I mean, the two main interoper interoperability projects that like, you know, I'm particularly very interested in and I've been like kind of like focused on is the first is obviously Cosmos uh, and then the other is Interledger. And I think that these are like, you know, kind of these two are like two of the examples on like two, the two different spectrums of uh, interoperability. So Cosmos, we're kind of talking about side chains kind of stuff where we're, you know, moving assets between blockchains. And then the Interledger is kind of in that realm of atomic swaps like protocols where the idea is, you know, how we're not trying to move assets between blockchains anymore. We're just trying to, you know, I'm using one blockchain and you're using an, another blockchain. We want to send some value back and forth. Like, you know, I want to pay for, it's really only meant for payments. Um, and so these two prod, you know, but it's only meant for payments and it's much more limited in its capabilities, but it has much fewer restrictions, right? Like in, in Cosmos, you kind of have, we have this assumption that, all these chains are going to implement IBC, and you know, if not, we need to like hack in IBC using peg zones. While Interledger has way fewer requirements uh, on it, and so, you know, I gave a talk a couple. And I, I think they're like both really important and useful technologies. Uh, and I actually gave a talk at the Interledger Summit uh, last month, kind of specifically on how these two pieces of like things like intermesh together and why they actually need to coexist to make, I, I think Interledger is actually a really important part of the Cosmos ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, in one way that I think one can also think about the topic is, you know, when Bitcoin uh, came along in 2013, the, or, you know, back then, 2011, 12, and, but people, would uh, talk a lot about, okay, application you could build on Bitcoin, and you had some of these early things like uh, colored coins and master coin. Um, and then, of course, you had with Ethereum, you had, you had this alternative vision in that they say, okay, Bitcoin's too limited. We can have an alternative, this world computer, and 
And in a way, the, there is very clearly uh, a concept of interoperability in Ethereum, right? Because it's all in the same machine and contracts and call each other. And, um, and you know, this kind of notion of internet of value has been around for a long time and kind of used in different contexts, right? Whether people have talked about it in the context of Bitcoin or Ethereum or maybe the Ripple guys. And I think today it seems pretty clear that that's not what the world's going to look like, but there's going to be lots and lots of different chains for lots of different purposes, uh, controlled by different people in different places, evolving in different ways. And so then interoperability becomes something different, right? It becomes about how do all of those chains somehow interoperate and create this like internet of blockchains, right? And so I think interoperability today, I think, is about figuring out how can different blockchains interact. And of course, within that, you also still have different visions. Something like Polkadot, which seems to be more, to me, like a continuation of the Ethereum vision in that you say, Okay, it's still kind of a world computer, uh, at least at the lowest level in, in sort of the security and the guarantees. Uh, but then, you know, you can have sort of a sharded version and lots of different ones. And then a more, uh, maybe more radically uh, decentralized approach, which is about both Interledger and IBC, uh, we kind of count under that, where there's, n there's not like an inherent hierarchy and the concept of what this network topology is going to look like, but it's just about, okay, how can these different chains communicate with each other? And I think another approach to interoperability, which is kind of the dark horse in the race, is that you see that there are these projects that are trying to build blockchains that can own private data, right? So there's, a, there's one project on... Tendermint, uh, Oasis, I think, there's Enigma, there's Ren. They're essentially using a bunch of different technologies, but you can have like this crypto network, and you can put data on that crypto network, and the data is confidential, and you can compute using the data, the confidential data that you have put on the crypto network. If that sort of thing is possible fundamentally and it can be made secure, then what kind of data would you want to put on such a crypto network? Well, you might want to put your private key on such a crypto network. Right? So if I can have my Bitcoin private key on that crypto network and my Atom private key on that crypto network, and some other user, Brian, has their Bitcoin and Atom private key on that crypto network, and it also gives us maybe some way to interoperate. Uh, because I could buy Brian's Bitcoin while giving up my Atom using a computation on that crypto network because both of our keys are on that network. So that could be an alternative, but I think it's a dark horse. Um, um, it may or may not be an important part of the interoperability space. So for Brian, uh, you know, Arthur Brightman has this like quip. He says that like, you know, all interoperability projects are just a veiled attempt at domination. Like even Cosmos said like, oh, you know, this is just like a veiled thing that we're saying, like interoperability when really all we're trying to do is like, you know, to make Cosmos Hub the chain. You, you know, what do you think about that like claim from him? Um, well, <laughs> 
you know, I'm sure different people have different, you know, priority orders, and uh, you know, obviously, people invest in holding atoms have, you know, some economic interest in Cosmos Hub becoming significant. But uh, I, I just think the way that IBC, let's say, is approached, and it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't prioritize Cosmos Hub, right? There's no mm -hmm. particular uh, role in it. So I, I wouldn't. I would like somewhat disagree. I mean, there's probably some truth to it as well, but I don't know. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with you on the, you know, I think the Cosmos design is kind of meant to not do that. Um, and, you know, we, we've been trying our best to make sure we support multiple hubs right from the get-go. Like, you know, there's already the Iris hub and we like, you know, encourage more hubs to like come in and like try different things, different distributions, different whatnot. Um, yeah, and then, you know, I mean, also I think the entire fact that, like, you know, uh, you know, the atoms are not making any play for, like, money or anything. And that right there is kind of, like, forcing a lot of the value to go to the edges of the Cosmos network, not necessarily on the hub itself. Mm. And what about interoperability then now between the different networks that, you know, presumably attempting dominance? So uh, <laughs> let's assume that, you know, in some years, Cosmos has a, you know, seven billion, or several billion dollar market cap. You've got Polkadot also with, you know, uh, um, important dominance in the space and like Ethereum 2.0 and maybe some other projects. Um, you know, at, at, at which point do we say, okay, now we need interoperability between those systems? Do we imagine now other blockchains sitting on top of those providing interoperability between them, or can they be interoperable just between themselves with the protocols that they implement and sort of using similar types of protocols? Yeah, I mean, basically, we just need to get them to implement IBC, and then, you know, Polkadot will just be a hub in the Cosmos network. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like, same with Ethereum and whatnot. Like, you know, it, it's all just part of this Cosmos interchain. And, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, so like, we are working with um, some of the ETH 2.0 uh, developers, like, you know, Prismatic Labs and stuff, on, like, how we can integrate some of the features of IBC into, like, Ethereum 2.0 and whatnot. And then, like, you know, with, yeah. with Polkadot, like, you know, it's easy to, you know, we can add an IBC adapter chain. Like, as one of the pair chains can be an adapter like an IBC adapter for connecting to the hub. That brings me to the, the next point that I wanted to address here is um, the, the types of applications that you know, different chains will attract. So you know, if we're looking at sort of the Ethereum space has been, um, you know, fundraising has been uh, one of the major ap applications for that platform. We're seeing a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of DeFi there. Um, one of the things I, I noticed here at this event at least is that there seems to be like a couple of projects that are in like the social good uh, space. So you know we've got like Regen Network. There's this uh, uh, Cello, and we saw a talk from the Open Money Initiative and everything that's going on there. And um, I myself and my friend will be working on a, a, a UBI project called Heartbeat. So like, do you think that Cosmos maybe is is a, a platform that will attract a lot of these types of projects, or are there you know, specific types of applications that you think will you know, sort of naturally come to the Cosmos uh, hub? I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know if the Cosmos is like particular, I don't think it has a you know, particular feature that favor like social change applications, but I think the thing that is unique about Cosmos is the uh, sovereignty of chains, right? So I think if you look at something like Binance Chain, 
I mean, can't really imagine that Binance would build a DEX as a parachain or on Ethereum 2.0, right? Because they would want full control. So I think just anything that cares about like governance and sovereignty uh, seems like very well suited for for building kind of in this cosmos paradigm. Uh, you know, that might be. I mean, you know, I think for example with region network guys, like I have one thing. <laughs> One thing that uh, makes a lot of sense to me there is also, the, you know, thinking about governance and who controls the network and the different stakeholders and stuff like that. And again, uh, you know, one of the challenges with something like Ethereum or some of these other designs is that, okay, we, you can have a, a DAP on Ethereum and it has its own governance, but then you always have the underlying governance of the platform, right? So you almost have like these layers of governance systems. And of course, you can not easily have conflict. As you saw with the DAO, right, where you had maybe the DAO holders that had one idea and then the Ethereum holders, some of them agreed, some of them didn't, but you clearly had different groups of stakeholders that now, you know, like conflicts will emerge. And I think, yeah, having this kind of sovereignty first approach just, I don't know, it just feels better to me. Yeah. I mean, I mean and then from the application standpoint, um, you know, I think like, I, I think smart contracting platforms are great. Like, as long as they're used for exactly what they sound like, which is smart contracting, right? Like, I, that's why I think ICOs and fundraisers took off on Ethereum and they're the perfect use case because they're something that are pretty short-term use and need high levels of customizability, right? Like, no ICO design was exactly the same. And so that short-term use and high customizability is what smart contracts are meant for. Um, but then when you're trying to do much more high level application, like, you know, much more advanced applications, like, like, you know, I think like a DEX platform or prediction market platform, I think that's when you start to want more application specific state machines that you have much more control over or much more efficient than running on the EVM, for example. Um, oh, and also, you know, so I was at the um, uh, Scaling Ethereum uh, workshop uh, last week in Toronto, and you know, there was this uh, joke going on, like, you know, basically, um, trying with the Plasma Group people, and basically the idea, you know, they were proposing like, you know what, let's just throw out ETH 2.0, and let's just take all of the uh, data availability work that we've been putting into ETH 2.0, and apply it to Plasma, and we're gonna call it Sharded Plasma. And basically, you know, the thing with Plasma is that like, you know, it's pretty, it, it's somewhat limited in its capabilities. Uh, the Plasma Group have, has done this like generalized Plasma, um, concept that they've, you know, worked on quite a bit. And so, you know, they've definitely expanded the scope of Plasma well beyond what it was like a year ago. Like, you know, it's, it's not just the Plasma, Plasma Cache thing with UTXOs. You could do much more things, uh, but it's still limited. Basically, you know, it's limited to things that you know that every piece of state has direct ownership at any given time. But, you know, I think 90% of DeFi use cases fall under this scenario. And so, like, you know, it's, uh, uh, with Ben uh, from Plasma Group, and you know, we were just saying like, yeah, you know, let's just like focus on that for ETH 2.0, and and then someone I think someone else asked like, oh, what what about like the few applications that don't need that? They're like, oh, just throw them on Cosmos. So you know, I think that's a actually a reasonable like design pattern, like things that need uh, that can work in this plasma. I, I, so essentially, like you know, my entire pitch has been that like you know, all of these different hubs need to find specializations, right? Uh, and I think Ethereum acts as a perfect Plasma-based hub. Like, you know, its focus should be on, like, being the root chain for different Plasma uh, constructions. Do we want to talk about composability a little bit? And 
the differences between well, I think it's like composability on, on there's composability on different levels, right? So composability within um, a chain like Ethereum and Cosmos and sort of differences there. But then also composability, I guess, in the future between different chains themselves. So like between Cosmos and Ethereum and like how value and um, information could could transit between those two systems. So maybe starting off with um, the differences, you addressed this a bit at the beginning, but between Ethereum and Cosmos and uh, the trade-offs that Cosmos has made on composability. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just the fact that you have to deal with, like, I mean, so even on Ethereum, you know, how they solved the composability issue was they basically created an ERC repo and people, like, you know, propose ERCs there. So, for example, you know, the most popular example of a composability design for Ethereum is the ERC-20 standard, right? By, by, by creating the standard, we basically say, okay, now, because all the tokens follow this standard, you know, now I can actually integrate it with both Uniswap and ZeroX, and you get that composability in the ecosystem. And so that we're, we're, we're kind of starting to do that now with uh, Cosmos in the uh, ICS repo. Uh, so it stands for Interchain Standards. And so kind of, you know, we're, we're putting into there a lot of these different kind of standards for how you how we expect to deal with different things. So, you know, the first obvious, the first one is going to be like token transfers uh, between chains. But then, you know, we'll, we'll start to add stuff like NFTs and Oracle data and like, you know, identity information. And, you know, I, it'll just get more and more different types of uh, standards uh, being added into there. Uh, and then... Part of the, what makes the composability in Ethereum a little bit easier is that they all use a common VM, right? It's all, you know, all, all, everything's using Solidity, and so representing these interfaces and, like, translating them is only, you know, you, you translate it from the, the spec in the ERC repo to Solidity. While in Cosmos, we have to translate it from, you know, you know, the spec in the ICS repo, we have to translate it to, you know, an SDK module. We have to translate it to an Agoric system. We have to translate it to, like, you know, an Ethermint system. We have to translate it to, like, you know, whatever new VMs come into the ecosystem. And so that that, that process is definitely going to be more complex. And maybe, um, you know, one of, the, one of the ways that, for example, you know, because in Ethereum there's only that one VM, what happens is people do the interface in the, ERC, in the ERC repo. So the ERC-20 standard, right, all it defines is the names of the functions, and then the real implementation is basically all always like, oh, you look at what's the standard in the Open Zeppelin repo, right? And that's like, okay, that's, that, that's what the definition of ERC-20 is now. Um, but we don't really have that, and so now basically our specs have to be more uh, uh, explicit on like what the functionality of these different uh, ICSs are. I think that. Yeah, I mean, of course, also another thing that's just uh, added complexity is that, you know, let's say if you look at Cosmos now and you want to build some application that spans multiple blockchains, now you have to worry about, you know, the different validator sets and what if one of yeah. them fails or like if you have multiple hops and so the security. Uh, it just becomes much more complicated, right? And the kind of game theoretic attacks and all of that stuff. So obviously Ethereum is nice in that way in that you kind of don't have to worry about any of this. Um, but yeah, that's just a trade-off. And I guess let's see how, how it all turns out. Um, yeah, but like maybe in Ethereum 2.0, some of the game theoretic vulnerabilities will resurface in a different 
in a different way. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess like Cosmos is co composability is going to be high. Uh, is going to be more challenging in Cosmos because of the reason Sunny mentioned, right? So if you have something like KYC data or you have NFT data, now you have a sending chain that's sending some NFT and a receiving chain. And both of these chains, ultimately they are getting like this stream of bytes and now they have to interpret these bytes to mean NFT. And they have to agree on the interpretation of how these bytes translate into an NFT, how a stream of bytes translates into a token, how a stream of bytes um, maybe translates into a withdrawal message for a validator, right? So these agreements will need to happen and different chains will need to like subscribe to these standard ways of translating bytes into these higher level financial objects. I think that's going to be one of the big tasks that emerges out of IBC. Another uh, challenge is the synchronicity as well because um, you know, in the in Ethereum, the nice thing is that you know, ever since everything is perfectly synchronous, you know, an event that happens in one contract can immediately call something uh, another contract and can force it to do something. Um, you know, the classic example, you know, essentially, you know, I mean, something I've been chatting, I've chatted with the Agoric people about is that, like, look, in the system right now, you can take a CDP maybe and move it to another chain, and if you want to liquidate it, that's probably possible. But what if we get into the but in in Maker, what you also need is you know there needs to be mass liquidation events as well because if the price of the uh, collateral goes down, it needs to send out a message to all of the CDPs that are everywhere and say, oh, you need to liquidate right now, or if or you know or at least you gotta you know re up the CDP or it's gonna be liquidated. And so how, like you know, it's just a much more complex design pattern when you have to start to do these kind of. Um, things across these many chains, across these asynchronous environments. Yeah, but I think one really interesting power that, that I find really interesting about the Cosmos SDK is that applications in the Cosmos SDK are autonomous in a way that Ethereum smart contracts are not. So in an Ethereum smart contract, like a smart contract has some state, it has restoring a bunch of bunch of things, and anytime you want to change it, an external user needs to like trigger this transaction, and the transaction will hit, and then there'll be a change. But the interesting thing about Cosmos chains is all of these applications can write application logic, which is oh, every hundredth block, like make make this particular change to um, to a to, to something. So I'll I'll give you an example. So imagine that. Imagine like like there's a zone, right? And that zone owns some address on the Cosmos Hub, right? So it's like this this whole zone, this whole network that's owning like this address on the Cosmos Hub, and this zone owns atoms on the Cosmos Hub. So like the region zone owns let's say 100,000 atoms on the Cosmos Hub, and delegates to Certus 1. Now, what is possible in the Cosmos SDK is for the region zone to have logic that every 1,000 blocks of the region zone, it will try to withdraw its rewards on the Cosmos Hub automatically, and uh, 
Basically, every thousand blocks, the region network will generate like this IBC packet, will flow over to the hub, and that IBC packet contains the instruction for withdrawing, um, withdrawing the rewards made by delegating to Certus one. And it like faithfully executes this every 1,000 blocks without any external user of the region network trying to trigger this withdraw, right? So this this like this this region application is like autonomous, right? Like it's, it it can do that autonomously. This kind of thing is really hard to do in, in Ethereum. But like if one chain can do something like periodically autonomously, all of these chains can do that. So you can have like some kind of logic that is autonomous across multiple chains, right? Like this chain does this, and then five blocks later, the other chain does something, and then 50 blocks later, this third chain does something, and these three chains keep dancing continuously, and then some kind of higher level functionality is achieved uh, in this particular way. So I think like this is kind of like different level of, different kind of composition that we might see in the Cosmos-based internet of blockchains. And yesterday I was talking to somebody from Polkadot, and it's possible that Polkadot will also have a sim like something, something similar on, on their side. And I, I wonder what, what this is going to enable. So the way I, I tend to think of it is, Ethereum has smart contracts, but at Cosmos SDK, we have decentralized bots. Right, we have like these decentralized bots that can <coughs> run uh, periodically and do something more than smart contracts. It's just not like Cosmos SDK is not like translation of just smart contracts. It's it's smart contracts, smart contract like things, but also decentralized bots. And I find that really interesting. I think we're going to have to spend a bit more time on this. How do we preserve neutrality as podcasters topic at the end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, I just want to say, like, you know, while you were just talking about that and, like, that and the thing I mentioned about the, like, Ethereum sharded plasma idea, it, I, something in my head just clicked for me. Um, so this idea that, you know, the claim was that the sharded plasma uh, design allows you, basically, you know, anything that, you know, all state is owned by someone, it, you know, that, that, that can all go on to plasma. And it's for everything else that, you know, let's throw it on Cosmos. You know, one of the common Bitcoiners' arguments against Ethereum is that smart contracts are useless because almost every useful smart contract or like DAP requires some level of Oracle data, right? And you know, and so you, so let's say you know your your die on Ethereum is not secured by Ethereum because it's actually support, secured by the MKR holders, right? Because you're, you're, the security, even though Ethereum security might be high. If the MKR security is lower, then you know that's what it's actually secured by. Or let's say Augur, for example, right? It's not actually secured by Ethereum. Its security is the minimum, which is which is the rep holders, right? And so I think Cosmos just says, okay, let's let, let, let's just make that explicit and say, okay, if the security is lower bounded by the Oracle providers, let's just make those Oracle providers also be the validators of a sovereign chain. And I think that, like you know, I think that probably fits that. I, I haven't thought through this enough because I just thought of it just now, but I think everything that can't go on Plasma essentially might need some sort of Oracle service to make it work because they're the ones who are collectively holding the shared state. And so that might need to uh, go onto a Cosmos chain because then you just have those validators act as the Oracles for the system. And, and of course, like this is not a property of 
like Cosmos, SDK, or or like Polkadot substrate. But it's just like a weird feature I, I feel of proof of stake. That in proof of work, um, when you have a miner, there is no public key associated with a miner, right? Like, um, so the entire Bitcoin protocol as a whole can't own Ether, right? Because who would be these, like, the signatory for the Ether owned by the Bitcoin protocol? But it just feels like very interesting and fascinating that in proof of stake, that's not the case, right? So when you have these 100 hub validators and you, are ident you can you identify them with these public keys, these 100 hub validators could collectively own, you know, tokens like, like Terra SDR on the Terra network. So the Atom, like the, the, the Cosmos Hub protocol can own Terra. Cosmos Hub protocol will be able to own like Kava USD. Cosmos Hub protocol will be able to own some derivative assets. And like Cosmos Hub governance will be able to exercise control over these assets. Right? And I feel like that's such a magical new capability added to crypto protocols just because these are proof of stake. Do you think we'll start seeing uh, hostile takeovers of chains between chains, well, or, or maybe well, a new a new job type, which is like a, a mergers and acquisitions banker for uh, for or, chains, or Cosmos <laughs> Hub can short itself? Ah, no? uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we did this uh, epicenter episode um, a couple months ago now with uh, Martin Koppelman uh, and Matan Field about the DX DAO. And you know, in, in that thing, he you know he made this interesting pitch or you know statement, which I think also the title of our epicenter episode, which was you know this will be the biggest organization or no, not biggest, most important organization no, in the world. No, you, it's biggest. a biggest. Yeah. Okay, this will be the biggest organization in the world in ten years. I think there was a like one percent chance yeah. or 1 something. Chance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's <laughs> just yeah put the context here for the Sorry, statement. So, um, but yeah, you know, I think, and basically, you know, his claim was that this DXDAO is starting off by running this, you know, providing governance for the Dutch X uh, exchange that they built. Uh, but then over time, you know, it's going to become the operator, you know, hopefully more and more DeFi systems as they get built, they'll like say to the DXDAO, oh, we want you to like govern this thing as well. Um, I think fundamentally all proof of stake validator sets are just DAOs, right? Um, and... But the difference between the Cosmos Hub validator set and the DX DAO is I think the Cosmos Hub validator set is a way more competent DAO. Like, uh, not that the DX DAO isn't competent, but they haven't really done anything yet. Meanwhile, the, the Cosmos Hub validator set has like, successfully launched a like, billion dollar network. They're able to run high security infrastructure. Um, you know, and so I think that, you know, just go listen to that entire Epicenter episode and every spot that they say DX DAO, just replace it with Cosmos Hub. <laughs> yeah, and then like they, then like Zaki's idea takes this one level ahead, right? Like these mm -hmm. these validators, they naturally have this staking pool address, and so these validators and these delegators, they are, you're also making them into DAOs naturally, right? Because it's like sub DAOs, sub DAOs, right? Yeah. Like they they are the they, they're the main. Cosmos Hub DAO and like, like Sika DAO is essentially a sub DAO of the Cosmos Hub DAO. And like we had like we had like child DAOs, right? Like yeah. there's 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 
Implicitly, there's a Certus DAO. Implicitly, there's a Dokia DAO. Implicitly, there's a Chorus DAO. It just exists. It will be like put into code, and it will have this staking pool address, and it and it'll be able to own assets on other chains. And then you'll find applications, and like these these DAOs will like branch off. These are like seedlings that are already there. They are going to branch off, and the trees are going to erupt from these these collections that have already begun. And it's going to be like it's such a beautiful design, right? Like it's. Um, it's like DAOs all the way <laughs> down, no? Down, <laughs> down. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to move on to, to another topic, which is um, something that you mentioned last night when we were preparing for this. So I, I really sort of started latching on to the idea of Cosmos at, um, at DEF CON in Cancun when you gave the talk where you sort of describe the vision for Cosmos and where uh, zones would be limited in functionality and that like all the benefits that has in terms of security and et cetera. Um, but you mentioned yesterday that it, it's possible that zones start sort of generalizing and progressively move towards like VMization, uh, I would say. Um, you know, how, how do you how do you see this sort of um, this idea that like zones should be either specific or tend towards generalization? And do you think that will happen? Um, I'm not really sure. Like, you know, one of the big questions that we're constantly having is like, how much stuff should go on the Cosmos Hub, right? Like, uh, we have one of the interns at uh, Tendermint right now. He's implement. He's working on implementing a Uniswap module in the Cosmos SDK. Uh, and so the question is, like, you know, should we put a Uniswap module on the Cosmos SDK? Like, you know, it, it, it it's like a, it's kind of like quite a departure from like, you know, j you know, if the Cosmos Hub is supposed to be very simplistic in like the state machine, you know, we should not put it there, right? But at the same time, there's so many assets, you know. You know, I consider the Cosmos Hub is like this crossroad for the like all these trading routes going between it, and it's nice to have a like little you know side of the road marketplace there where like you know it's not going to be a full fledged like order book decks or something, but it's it, you know Uniswap is a very nice lightweight system, and so if people are quickly going through this Cosmos Hub, you know might as well stop at the it's like Uniswap is kind of like the um, airport like currency booth where you know you're probably not getting the best prices, but you know it's good for like those quick. Uh, trades that you need to do and so you know do we put that in the hub or not and it's like kind of I, I actually you know I, I don't know the answer to this like what who like what goes in the hub what doesn't or you know it just in general any zone right like how do they decide what what you know how much to expand and what the you know trade-off between like generalization and maybe at some point we just start generalizing so much it just turns into you know, everyone's just running an EVM again or hopefully not the EVM because but you know hopefully a better VM and like um, and everyone just starts running that I don't, I don't know so in like in biology there's this idea of convergent evolution so so in like if you look at the tree of life right and like all life can be put into a tree and there are like branches of the tree of life so like you know like vertebrates all of us lizards we are all vertebrates we are a one branch of tree of life cephalopods like squid jellyfish they are another branch of life arthropoda insects they are a third branch of life there are many branches of life the interesting thing is all of these branches of life have evolved the eye independently of each other like 
Eyes have evolved in the vertebrate branch. We have eyes. Eyes have evolved in the insect, like arthropoda branch. Like they have compound eyes with a different different design, and they have evolved independently in the cephalopods. Eyes have evolved eight times, right? Which means like there is something that is special about the eye, the the the, the notion, the concept of an eye itself. That life life ends up evolving the eye. The same with wings. Like wings have evolved like four or five times. Like reptiles have evolved wings. Like mammals have evolved wings. Like dinosaurs evolved wings and became birds. So like bugs. The, hmm? even, bu even even bugs. Like insects have evolved wings. So like the question here is somewhat like: Is Vitalik's idea of this general-purpose VM that's like doing the smart contract computation? Is it like the eye? Like, no matter what point you start with, you're going to end up at, at it, right? I actually think that's, that's true, because if I think of the Sikka DAO or the Chorus DAO, let's say, now, Sikka DAO is going to have, like, these, I don't know, 20,000 people that are the members of the DAO. Now, at some level, you don't want the evolution of the DAO to be constrained by the Sikka team. You want the ability for, if some member of this DAO has an intelligent idea, you want to give this member the ability to permissionlessly build their thing and be able to central to this, be able to signal to the central Sikka team that, hey, this is an interesting thing to do with the Sikka DAO. And like, how do you give that capability? I think you give that capability by having something like a VM that's somehow attached to your main, main DAO logic. Right, so I, I feel like these VMs might be this, this point of convergent evolution. Like no matter where you start with, you will end up feeling the need for it. Maybe it's like, um, you know, I mean, kind of for, here's an example, right? We, we want all these staking derivatives on the Cosmos Hub, but it's like, you know, you know, you know, we can trade those signatures, but wouldn't it be nice if we can actually put like a, a VM on there? So you know, maybe you can create like tranches of the like uh, for like uh, different uh, state datums, and you know, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and for that, you kind of maybe need a VM. So maybe you know, if it does turn into a thing where everything needs a VM at some point, what what maybe the end result of the Cosmos SDK is? It's just a way. You know, I'll use the EVM as an example. Uh, you know, it's just a way for you to launch. No, everything turns into Ethermint, but the purpose of the Cosmos SDK is to make custom precompiles for your personal Ethermint, right? Everything has an EVM, and people are using the EVM, but like, you know, the problem is the EVM is not great for building these large things. So, you know, maybe I'll have my staking logic as a Cosmos SDK module that you'll call from the EVM as a precompile, and all your, like, you know, whatever your project is, maybe that core logic will be precompiles as SDK modules. and. Yeah. I don't know. That that seems plausible. I, I I mean, kind of on that. So the unit with the Uniswap example, right? So yeah, you could you could put the Uniswap thing on the Cosmos Hub, which makes sense in some way. Um, but also, if you if you think now all of these different chains connected to the Cosmos Hub and they're routing IBC packets through, like I mean, with the scalability challenges of blockchain and you know the benefit of having like kind of you know higher performance purpose specific blockchains. It kind of makes sense to have it, you know, just for routing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the same time, you don't. Let's say, let's say the Cosmos Hub. There's a few things that are essential. Maybe it's like bridging to Ethereum, bridging to Bitcoin, having the Uniswap thing. Maybe a bunch of other stuff. 
Like you don't want to have, you know, five different staking tokens with their own communities and their own, like that just gets too confusing, right? If I now have to route through a transaction from the Bitcoin to the Cosmos hub and then do the Uniswap and go somewhere else, and I have to worry about, you know, four different staking tokens and their own communities, right? So like that, that doesn't feel natural. So I think it, it feels natural to have, um, you know, split that up over m multiple chains, but probably have the same staking token for that. Well, the you shared know. security design. Yeah, something, like, I mean, you know. Interchain collateralization. I, yeah, I think the, sh the shared security thing kind of goes into a bunch of different directions. I think there's one which would be that, like you're trying to basically use a bunch of functionality and, and it should just be done by one stakeholder group and you don't want to have to reason about like multiple staking tokens and economic incentives and all of that, right? Well, the reason, what I'm more worried about is the latencies of IBC. So let's say I, I'm going from zone A to zone B, I want zone B token. I don't want to go to the hub, then to the Uniswap zone, then back to the hub, and then to zone B. I'm, that, it's the latency of IBC that I'm worried about here. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, that will be a trade-off, right? Like yeah. the latency of IBC versus like the scalability of these chains. Yeah. I mean, that's my biggest thing where I think Interledger comes into play, where I think Interledger helps uh, solve some a lot okay. of the latency issues with IBC. Yeah, I, I tend to think that generalization would tend towards some form of centralization or like, you know, some network effects around, around you know, networks. Um, and we, we, saw, we sort of saw this with Ethereum, right? Where like Ethereum captured the majority of the sort of smart contract community and uh, smart contract development. I think if you know there are 10, 20, 30 zones that end up having like a general purpose um, smart contract language or VM, uh, you know, a lot of those will probably end up not mattering very much and you'll have like one dominant one. Um, of course, unless this starts becoming like part of the Cosmos hub at that point, then like all these other zones kind of stop mattering. But like it kind of echoes the point that Jay made yesterday in the Q&A, which is like you want to have systems that enable people to easily leave uh, and exit towards something else if they feel that it no longer uh, supports sort of the, the, their, their, their threshold for like how centralized something is. In the second DAO, I added the uh, rage quit option from the Moloch DAO. So, you know, if you, if you want, you, you, you get really mad at the Sika DAO, you can burn your Sika DAO, DAO tokens and receive your, the proportional share of the assets of the DAO with some penalty, of, like a rage quit penalty. So, you know, I think we should be actively making sure we build in exit, like, you know, be thinking about exit options when we build these systems. There's so many other uh, things that we had plan to cover here. So there's there's one more thing that um, before we sort of turn to the audience. And again, if you have questions at any point, you can just raise your hand and uh, gentleman here with the mic will give you the mic. Uh, so with with regards to you know zones starting to now build and will soon be launching uh, on the hub um, as as validators, and I'm asking this specifically to you guys because you're all validators. Uh, how, how do you see that sort of comp competing landscape playing out? Because like zones will start competing for your attention and your validating power. I mean, we saw this a little bit at the dinner that you guys had. There were people there and like, you know, I'm here like trying to meet validators and, and pitch them on my idea. Um, how would you evaluate those projects and like make decisions about which zones you want to support? Is this something you've thought about? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we had the, the validator uh, panel yesterday, you know, and I think Hendrik made the point, which I think is perfectly correct, that, you know, it, it's almost like an investment decision, you know, whether or not one directly invests money, one certainly invests a lot of time and resources. And, and you know, I think with all of these projects, um, you know, it's going to take a long time for them to succeed, you know, and to, to build them out and the functionality to be there and people start using it and transaction fees to come in. And maybe there's some token, but, you know, right now there's not maybe no liquidity or value is unclear, right? So you always have to take some kind of like bet on the future of that project. Uh, and so, yeah, then of course you have to look at exactly the same thing that probably investor would look at. Okay, is this, does this vision make sense? Is the team good? Are they serious about it? Will they work on it for a long time? Do they have the resources to, to build it? So I think there's all of those things. Um, there's obviously also the question of just how hard is it to, you know, run that network. And then certainly if people build on Cosmos SDK, that makes it easier. Um, so you know, fix yeah. yeah. So I mean, there's a there's a technical side, and then there's the business side, right? Um, so if you onboard a new network, I mean, the business side is very clear, right? Um, you'll have to go and market to this community, and it's going to cost you effort, um, and maybe that's the large larger cost, right? On the technical side, I when I last year when building the validator, I almost have like had like a crisis of confidence. I was like, the validator is a damn commodity, right? Like these all of these validate like all of these networks, the validators are just going to be the same, and we're going to just keep on replicating this thing. And because it's all the same, this is going to be a commodity. You know, I had a crisis of faith like that, <laughs> and. You know, the interesting thing is like this year, every every network is subtly different technically. So Cosmos Hub, okay, you know how the validators on Cosmos Hub work. On Terra, we have validators on Terra. On Terra, we are building a price oracle. Right? We have to invest effort into building this price oracle and like securing this price oracle. Because for the stable coin, they need prices and we are supplying the prices to the Terra network. Um, I hear like on the on the Kava network, we are going to need to do parameter setting, and this parameter setting is going to be complex. So we'll need to develop an algorithm to help the network set these parameters. That's custom effort. Another network we're working with, Solana. Solana is an oddball altogether. Our HSMs are too slow for Solana. They need GPUs to do signature verification. Um, there's no point building our high availability solution in Solana because that network wants to run so fast that a high availability solution will not work. There's a ton of custom effort for Solana. So while I initially felt all of these, the technical costs for onboarding new networks were going to be very low, in practice, it's not behaving like that, at least this year. Now, maybe the future is that we'll build a bunch of 25 tools, price oracle, this, this, that, 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 and then the next network you throw at us will be able to use that tool, and then the onboarding cost will fall. Or maybe it never falls. Maybe every new network is its own beast, and it will need this custom thing, and there's go always going to be technical onboarding cost. So there's definitely a business onboarding cost. There might be always a high technical onboarding cost. And if both exist together, 
then you have to be very picky with the networks you onboard. Yeah. So now we've got 10 minutes left. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I want to ask a question from the audience about yeah, go ahead. onboarding cost. Um, so I, I guess I don't understand for in the technical, I, I, I kind of get that, but in terms of the business onboarding cost, um, let's say some random project comes up to you and let's say they're running everything pretty standard Cosmos SDK, so the technical onboarding cost maybe is not that much. For the business one, um, let's say you don't really care to advertise or get engaged with their community. Um, you have a reputation from your Cosmos hub validation that you validate correctly, you run the code correctly. You look at their code, um, maybe you audit it, or maybe you just run it in a VM. I mean, AWS doesn't audit all the code that runs on their system. So I'm wondering, like, like if you don't really care about, like, kind of getting deeply involved in a certain community, like, what, I mean, you know, what are the onboarding costs, really, in terms of, like, the business onboarding costs that you discussed? I mean, I guess the yeah. point is that you can't, I think you do, I mean, I think what Brian's point was that you should, you know, have some care of, like, getting involved with the community. Or, you know, you at least have to have some level of faith in the project because what you are investing is your time. And, you know, like, you know, trade your money for your time, for more time always, right? And so, you know, in the investment of time that we're putting, in, like what Mahira said, like, you know, every system usually designing it requires, like, a, a, a time investment because they're all slightly different. And so, you know, I think the community of a project is something that you should, you know, be deeply involved with or at least familiar with when you're making a decision about, because that's probably one of the biggest factors of the success of the project, and you shouldn't be validating on it if you don't at least have some belief in the success of the project. Yeah, and sort of to also to your question, I mean, at least in the kind of Cosmos staking design, and you know, maybe there will be different, I mean, I'm sure there will be different design, like Polkadot, for example, has a kind of a different designer. But in the Cosmos design, you have this connection between staking and governance, right? So if, if you, as a validator, you have this like significant responsibility to, to be engaged in the governance and follow it and things like that. So if you're gonna like validate on some chain that like, okay, maybe it's easy to sort of have it run and like sign a thing, but like you don't really know or care about the community or what it's work. I mean, I don't think it's gonna be good for these networks, right? Like I think they will struggle because they'll have like basically stakeholders who don't care and not engaged. And then if something goes wrong, right? It's still your responsibility, right? Like you, you Maybe that works fine as long as everything works fine, but at some point it's not going to work fine anymore, and then you have to deal with it, right? Because you can't just. Um, I think that that would be your responsibility. So I think there there is that that cost. Yes. Yeah, so, so you'd say validators are are more responsible for the blockchains, much more responsible than somebody like AWS is for applications running on their system. Yeah, yeah. certainly, yeah. right? I mean, AWS is not going to make any decision about like the future of your application, right? But, well, validators, yeah, again, at least in the Cosmos design, do. I mean, if you had some sort of different staking design where maybe have, like, like in Polkadot, right, this kind of governance council and they make the decisions and that's a different group of stakeholders and you literally just are responsible for, like, running the code and, you know, then maybe it is different, right? Like, it might, maybe it doesn't have to be like that for all of the chains. Also, I mean, AWS doesn't hold equity in the companies that use AWS, while Cosmos validators have some, some sort of stake in the networks that they're validating. 
Well, I mean, if you don't, that it's very hard to get delegation on those chains. And also, if you want to get delegation, that's another reason you have to be active in those communities. Yeah. So I'd like to open it up now to like sort of general questions uh, about anything we've discussed here. If you have any questions about the podcast or you want to ask us specifically, uh, go ahead. Um, it's been pretty obvious, obvious these days that a lot of projects are on the lookout for validators. So I wanted to hear your opinion about uh, the exact time when you, they pitch you the vesting schedules. How do you feel about vesting schedules? Like they're really struggling to keep the validators inv involved for long periods. So how do you see that for newly spun up zones or hubs? You mean if they have some sort of vesting for like investors or for like tokens that validators earn through like operating the network? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't actually seen that, I think. And there's obviously the thing about like, yeah, you're investing uh, or, you know, somebody is, is doing some token sale and, and, you know, now, of course, there are various projects trying to do sort of validator-specific token sales, which I think makes, uh, you know, it, it's, it makes sense. Um, of course, it can be a challenge, right, because many validators are not uh, funds, or most validators are not funds, so they don't necessarily have like the resources to uh, buy tokens. Um, but yeah, then obviously I think the idea of like giving, uh, the, you know, let's say some discounted price, but there's some lockup and things like that. I think that makes perfect sense. And in generally having vesting on token sales, uh, I'm, I'm all in favor of it. Do you think validators are going to inevitably have to become funds? <laughs> like for for yeah, Sika, we like yeah. have a partnership with Decrypt Capital, and that's kind of mm. how we like make that work. But like, yeah, well, on some level, uh, yeah, I do think they naturally evolve into fund-like structures because e even if you know, like, let's say you're running a validator on Cosmos, then you have some atoms and revenues. Now, probably you're gonna have to like liquidate, you know, some percentage, you know, maybe a lot to cover your costs, but you know. Uh, if if you have any kind of profit, then uh, you know these will be in tokens. Now you, and then maybe you have a bunch of other tokens and other chains. So you started to having to manage these different positions, right? So that that becomes a factor of, of figuring out like when you liquidate what, um, and then you know quite naturally you would build up some sort of balance sheet of oh. tokens, and then of course at some point, maybe not now, but maybe in two or three years. Um, if if this succeeds, and if these companies succeed, they, they would probably would be in a position to invest in and participate in these uh, kind of funding rounds, and and so I I do think it kind of naturally goes in that direction. Cool. Yeah, cool. Um, the idea you you talked this morning about uh, like you know the the concept of uh, the validator being like somehow like. A, either a DAO or a fund, so you're kind of like switching different ideas. And I'm thinking about like, what do you guys think about uh, like a second level governance, kind of like the proposals, you know, with this concept of having the address for the <laughs> validator, the Zaki, that really kind of like change, mixed up a lot of things. So what about like some like sort of like sub level of governance, Is something 
useful, not useful, good, not good. What do you guys think? Yeah, I didn't the delegators being able to vote. Oh, the, yeah, the delegators of like the same validator. way that validators can like do proposals and yeah, yeah. you know with with bonded proposal, not just like two things, but just like I put my uh, my the skin in the game, what I'm saying, what I'm proposing, and I get slashed. The same concept. You think this can be also apply like to the second level, like uh, yeah. sub. Right. So, right. so that's one thing on the Cosmos Hub, though, really quick. Mm. Like, you know, it's not just validators that can make proposals and vote and deposit. All delegators and all staked atom holders can, you know, participate in governance. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, any delegator, currently validators uh, inherit the vote of their delegators, but delegators can always override their validators. So, yeah, But on the matters of, like, no. we're... The concept of having like the the single address for the the all uh, the all delegators kind of like creates like not tribalism because it, that's a bad word but kind of like creates like a community which is the opposite. Okay? Yeah. Now, uh, do you think that this, uh, there will be space also to give a voice, actual voice to that community? That's yeah. Yeah, my yeah. thought. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the four chorus one. When we created our interesting thing is like last year, back in April, we created a Slack, which is Chorus One community, because we thought like these delegators, they are a community. Not many people came, right? <laughs> and then we created a Telegram channel. What do you name it? We named it Chorus One community, right? And then now we have like 250 people on that Telegram channel and they are posting. Now we are going to get an address. I think it's only logical that there is some way for these delegators to signal to us what they what they want out of the validator. I don't know what they'll signal about, maybe in the beginning. I think like the use case doesn't exist right now. Like what do the delegators exactly signal us about? But I think something will emerge where it will make a lot of sense to further deepen this community. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that if you look at the way that proposals get submitted now, like a lot of there's this, and this was mentioned yesterday, like discussions happen in a lot of different places, like on forums, on Telegram, etc. And then like the the final the final decision and the final signaling ends up being the proposal. Um, like there could be, I think, different layers of granularity there where you can have some form of automated or like organized, <laughs> orchestrated signaling, uh, where like if you're you know, if you're going to post like a draft or like a pre-draft of a proposal, you can already kind of post it and start getting people to, um, in a more tangible way and like with some form of stake, um, like signal their. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, of all of the podcasts that we've done, I think the one that always remains in my mind the most is the one we did with CZ about Binance, and uh, I. The thing that stands out to me there is really that you have this enormous blurring between the customer and the company, right? It's sort of kind of all the same a little bit. And I think that's just enormously powerful. And so even though maybe it's not like a sort of DAO in the sense that we think about it uh, traditionally in the blockchain space, right? That it's like all on chain and smart contracts and stuff. You can think of Binance a little bit like a DAO. 
And I think why did it grow in this meteoric way and become such so hyper successful so quickly? Uh, it's it's because of that, in my view at least. Or that's a huge factor to it. I think all successful organizations in the future will look like that, or the most successful ones will. Uh, and so I think that's that absolutely ties into that. So I, totally, I think all of the the custom, customers delegators are like community, and I think the more that one can sort of uh, you know, give them uh, you know deeper stake and involvement. You know, the better. And we've spent a lot of time thinking about how to do that. Is like uh, the biggest obstacle is always uh, legal issues. Um, so that's that's the sort of challenge for exactly how to make it happen. But like I think, like we very much want to go as much as we can in this direction. And I think that's the that's the inevitable future of organizations in general. Also, so like this is kind of one of the things I'm, I'm trying to do with the Sika DAO is that I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not committing that like, oh, I will vote exactly the way that the DAO says, but you know, any decisions I will kind of use the DAO as an advisory thing at the very least, where it says that like, okay, here's a way for you to signal what you think, and I'll, you know, I'll obviously take that into heavy consideration. Final question, perhaps? That was the last one? Okay, well, thank you for taking part in our very first live podcast. Uh, and so this will go out on our feed uh, next week. So if you're not yet a subscriber to the Epicenter podcast, please go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe. You can also find us on iTunes um, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Epicenter, Epicenter. Check out the podcast. Um, talk about the podcast. Listen to the podcast. But go eat some food. We got lunch outside. Oh, one other thing. I do have a little podcast I also run called Conspiratus, so check that out as well. Conspiratus. I'd like to welcome our first conversation between Jay Kwan, CEO of Ombit and president of the Interchain Foundation, and Sebastian Couture from Epicenter. Thank you for uh, for uh, inviting me to this event. I mean, I, I feel really kind of privileged to be here uh, the first uh, on the first session with you, Jay. And thanks for thanks for uh, helping us. Uh, and uh, yeah, likewise, thank you for uh, thank you everyone for coming here. I know it was a uh, pretty crazy weather last night. So uh, yeah. So our, our time is limited. We've got twenty five minutes, so okay. we're going to try to cover as much as possible. Okay. Um, I will be. I don't know if we'll have time for audience questions, but if you do have questions, um, if you go to my Twitter feed, you'll see a pinned tweet up there, and just reply to that uh, to that tweet, and I'll, I'll get the questions here, so that way we can sort of uh, move along uh, as fast as possible. So, you know, starting off with the Cosmos launch, uh, we launched a couple of months ago. Um, things have gone relatively smoothly. You know, validators are. Um, up and running. There's been no major bugs except for like you know, one that was found and uh, fixed pretty pretty rapidly. Um, governance has been very interesting to watch as well. Um, you know, what has surprised you the most since the launch? What have you found the most interesting to see, and what has sort of you know uh, went against your intuitions with regard to launch? Okay. Yeah. Good question. Um, is that what I sound like, really? Um, weird. 
So, um, yeah, launch has gone really well. Um, I think there were many cases, many instances where things could have gone um, not as well as it could have. So, like, the, before launch, there was a bug that may have caused a chain haul. So far, we haven't seen a chain haul. Um, uh, so, uh, I think a lot of it was... Well, we're lucky to not have had major issues so far. I think the biggest thing would have been, say, if something were bad in the crypto layer, then, you know, you can't recover from that easily. But that hasn't happened, so thank God. Um, I think the latest issue that we discovered with, um, with the unbonding issue um, was, uh, it, it was kind of a, a good issue to have had because it was... Um, it was just on the threshold of like bug severity where it's almost really bad, but it's, it's not. So like we even had a debate internally about whether it was uh, how much of, a, of an emergency it was, you know? <clears throat> Would people start massively unbonding um, as soon as they figured out that they could? Or, um, uh, but what we found was that um, it wasn't even um, really exploited much, right? Um, so it was good for us to have had that experience so that the next time when there is something maybe more severe, we know um, uh, uh, how to respond better. So uh, it helped us flex our you know, response issue uh, muscles. But uh, we should still have more conversations around like what happens when you find like a bug that is so severe you, can't, you don't even want to share it with the validators, right? So that was the conversation we had internally. I think it's a conversation we should have now um, before the next issue happens. Because on the one hand, you might think of like either Tendermint Inc., the for-profit, or the Interchain Foundation as being the one that dictates and you know, that everyone should be able to trust. But um, the, the intent behind the chain and all of these entities is to do the opposite, you know, to make sure that everything is decentralized, that we, we aren't owners of the network. Um, uh, so how do we get there in a responsible way? Um, and, uh, and I'm sure we'll learn a lot of lessons along the way. But uh, yeah, otherwise, things, it looks like things are going well. Let's see. That, that, that kind of brings me to my next question, which uh, is um, moving forward, um, you know, what do you see as the role for AIB all in bits, Tendermint Inc., uh, with regards to the foundation, and you know, could you just describe sort of what you see there as the, the role of those two organizations going forward? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> yeah, great question. I think there are, there are three entities here because there's, there's the uh, Tendermint Inc., it's actually called All in Bits Inc., it's, it's the Delaware C Corp. There's the Interchange Foundation, which is based in Switzerland, um, it conducted the fundraiser. Um, it, it also owns and manages like the trademarks and some of the IP, um, but it has the most funds right now to be um, used for developing this ecosystem and this network. Uh, it has a mandate. So, like unlike uh, a for-profit like 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 Tendermint Inc. or All in Bits Inc., um, the Swiss Foundation needs uh, to operate under its stated mission, which is to develop like the Cosmos network and decentralized protocols. Um, but still, like, the intent behind even the foundation is, like I was saying earlier, not to dictate the network, uh, but rather just to be a participant of it, 
You know, it ha it has the funds and it needs to use the funds uh, for the to enable the network. But um, the, the intent was for it to be kind of this this beneficial participant, right? Just like any other participant. So uh, who's the third entity? The third being the the the, the stakeholders themselves, right? So the blockchain. Uh, through its governance mechanism um, and uh, implied and uh, explicit social contracts, uh, uh, it should be able to govern itself and um, and make decisions on its own. Uh, it sh it should be aware that it, it is autonomous and it has um, the ability to do so. I mean, we've been going through several governance contracts already, so I think we all know what that's like. Um, and uh, so it's the nature of the experiment to create a sovereignty, to create um, a, a network with participants um, that's not based on a legal entity, but is based on um, communication and, and transparency and, uh, and, and various crypto-economic mechanisms. Um, yeah, the, the whole experiment and the point is to, for it to govern itself. So don't let the ICF or AIB or myself or anyone dictate what the hub should do. Um, it's really... It's the token holders, and um, it's the mechanisms, but it's all of us that, that make the chain what it is. So what will, what will AIB now shift its focus to now that the, the hub is launched? Um, there's, there's still a lot of um, engineering, um, like a, lo a lot of the engineering um, uh, machinery. <laughs> machinery, no, I mean like the engineers, and the people, and the talent um, is still... Um, uh, it's, it's in, in ICF as well, but it's also in AIB, the company. AIB is trying to become a software company. Um, and we have uh, largely two product lines that we're developing now on top of uh, everything else we're doing. So there's the infrastructure. Um, we're developing um, IBC. We're continuing to develop Tendermint. Uh, we've been developing SDK, and we'll continue to do that. Um, but all of that may evolve in the future. Um, uh, so that's the infrastructure layer, but on top, uh, we also want to participate in, in developing applications that use the, uh, the, the network. So you can think of it as like infrastructure versus applications. Um, um, maybe you can think of it as a pendulum where, you know, um, for a while we've been developing infrastructure, but really in order for this infrastructure to prove itself, there needs to be applications. And there are applications that are being built, but um, we think that it's such a large like opportunity space that that uh, we should be building apps as well. So what kind of applications are you look most looking forward to? What's the, what are the projects uh -huh. or areas that you would really like to see developed? Because a, a blockchain is nothing without the applications that are built on. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're exploring that still now, so you know, we're, not, we're not really sure 100%. Um, but the way uh, we're thinking about it largely, and like, there's two prongs to this. One is we want... Uh, we want something that can generate revenue um, in the short and long term. Uh, so we want to develop a line of business. It's probably going to be in the finance space. So like, you know, like one obvious use case might be a DAX. So we're exploring that now, but we're also exploring other opportunities. And then uh, on, on the other hand, you have um, non-financial applications. Um, I think um, there's, there's a ton of applications that don't involve tokens that um, can benefit from the infrastructure. And I think they can benefit each other uh, when done well. So we'll try both of those lines. Um, yeah. So that's AIB. The ICF, um, you know, it, so it has a, a mandate to uh, help enable the network. Uh, and um, 
And so there's just a lot of funding activity that needs to be coordinated. Um, uh, but uh, more on that later. So moving on now to the, the ecosystem. Um, yesterday I was upstairs at Full Note and I was kind of going around talking to people in the Cosmos, Cosmos ecosystem and asking the community, like, what are the things I should be asking you today? And so huh. these are some of the questions that, that um, were brought up. Uh, one of the things that is on many people's minds is you know, potential centralization in the validator set. Um, could you give us your thoughts on this issue? Is this something you're worried about? The potential for centralization. Sorry, I, uh, the I, potential centralization in, in validation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, basically, validators uh, going towards a race to the bottom, and a lot of the smaller validators being pushed out. Mm. Um, I think um, I'm not too concerned about it yet. Um, I think in the long run, it may like who knows what's going to happen in the long run. I think anything can happen. Like eventually, uh, so I have this like working hypothesis. That's sort of vague, but the idea is that um, any anything that even starts off decentralized, if it if it's sufficiently economically complex, it'll eventually centralize. Um, and I think that's true for any system, no matter how you try to design it so that it stays decentralized. Eventually, it'll figure out a way to become consumed by itself. Um, so. Uh, in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, the Cosmos Hub is flawed or that blockchains won't work, but rather, I think that highlights the importance of the, the need to create open source code and, and protocols and standards so that um, once something does become centralized, people have the opportunity to exit or to use alternatives. And, then, and ideally, everything is still interoperable along the way so that the transition is smooth. But yeah, when, if and when the Cosmos Hub validators prove themselves to be centralized, and you, you should be able to tell based on like the network pattern of their signatures, as well as how they vote, um, where they stand on issues. Um, and if you feel that it's not sufficiently decentralized in, in its thinking, then we should be moving away from the hub and using perhaps another hub, right? So um, I think in the long run, we'll see, um, we'll see cycles, uh, perhaps, where um, Maybe something gets too centralized, and then people decide to fork it out and move on. Um, yeah, I think we'll see like generational creative destruction this way for sure. But in the, in the short term, in the next ten years, I'm not really sure how it'll shake out. So um, we should we should strive to stay decentralized, and um, we'll see. Let's keep an eye on it. Is is that part? Do you think of sort of the foundation's mandate to? promote the, the Cosmos Hub and decentralization in the Cosmos Hub, or are you a, promote, a proponent of a, a multi-hub ecosystem where hubs are competing against each other? Mm -hmm. I, I, I do believe that we should be building toward um, a multi-hub system, um, as in something that makes it easier for people to exit to work on other hubs and for economic activity to start coalescing around other hubs. Um, such that there is this freedom of motion and, and, and therefore this competition um, uh, which allows and, and enforces the decentralization of the hub itself. Because um, it's kind of like, um, remember like Web 2.0, like, uh, like Drupal and, and all these things? Like, yes, a lot of the selling points of those um, uh, open source projects was that there was no lock-in, right? Um, and I think um, just I had a conversation at one point with one of the one of the founders, 
and and they were explaining how um, you know that was an important pitch because um, sometimes you do get locked into software, even if it is like open source, they can design in such a way that you know, like you're locked into that ecosystem. But when you make it clear that it's open source, that, that, you, that, that there isn't lock-in and that you can transition easily out to any other platform, it gives you the comfort um, to, to, to stay and use that platform. And, and it also incentivizes the creators and the maintainers of that platform to, to do the right thing so it doesn't turn into this centralized thing that starts exploiting the users. Um, so I think that's, that's what we should do. Another another topic that came up was the um, the question of shared security and Cosmos's unique um, uniqueness in, in bootstrapping networks. So you know a, a zone, if you compare it to other other blockchain networks out there and the way you build applications, uh, a zone has to bootstrap their own validator set, has to bootstrap the security model, and and potentially even raise funds to distribute a token. Um, you know, in, in regards to bootstrapping the, the network um, and the work that a zone has to do to, to do that, do you, do you see that as a challenge for Cosmos, you know, in, in, in the face of other blockchain networks out there where you have shared security and it's really just about building your applications and, and deploying it to the network? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do see that as a problem now um, that we will be solving uh, initially with, like, simple replicated shared security over IBC and, uh, and then like uh, different experiments on top. So like, uh, thank you. Some, some projects uh, like Polkadot, um, uh, I, I don't know what Polkadot is, is trying to build for nowadays, but at least in the white paper, they described a pretty um, specific way of sharding, right? Um, I, I think Polkadot also calls it shared security, but yeah. And, and, but when we say shared security, sometimes it's different depending on who's saying it and when. Um, but uh, 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 the idea with Cosmos Hub uh, initially was just to be um, minimally defined, so that you can add, you can you can do different kinds of experimentations and, and let um, different security models kind of evolve. Um, okay, so in, in the first phase there will be multiple blockchains with their own validator set, completely independent, and that's where we are today. Um, so we see that a lot of projects want to recruit validators to join their network to help bootstrap their ecosystem, which is, I think, fantastic. So going back to one of the questions um, that was surprising, it's kind of surprising how quickly that's happening. Um, yeah, But as soon as we have IBC and replicated shared security, and what I mean by that is like you have a validator set here, um, and through IBC to other zones, you can, you can just um, copy the mutations of the validator set to all of the replica chains, right? Pretty simple model. And then if you do anything wrong anywhere, you can submit the evidence onto the hub or, or the center chain, the master chain, I call it, master-slave replicas. Um, and, and so that way you can keep all the economic, like maybe like the token, the staking token distribution system and, and fees and all that all in one place. And wherever you do wrong, you get slashed everywhere. And so that means um, the, uh, per, for each staking token, um, um, well, it means that for all of these, um, the, the, the stake has gone up. So um, arguably, and I think this is correct, the, the security of the whole overall system goes up because you have so much more 
um, you can see, because there's more potential for earning transaction fees in the system, um, uh, the amount of security also goes up as well. Um, but there are other models of shared security, like the Polkadot model, maybe, where um, uh, you, you don't have to be a validator validating on all the... And so, so uh, in replicated shared security, uh, all the validators have to validate on all of the zones that we're talking about, the main one as well as the... Yeah. But in Polkadot, like, at least in the original white paper, you kind of are shuffled around, right? So I think there are different models. Um, and even when shuffling, like there's different ways you can shuffle, you know, different ways you can create subsets. Maybe some blockchains require larger validator sets than others. Um, maybe there are regional considerations, like continental considerations to consider as well. So I think there's going to be a lot of different models um, on top. But they can largely all kind of work with the Cosmos Hub spec that we're developing. Right? So no matter what replicated or, 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 or shared security system we have, uh, they, they should probably all just work fine. Yeah. And, and, and the Cosmos Hub doesn't have to be aware of the different you know, mechanisms it has because it's just using the same protocol of uh, like client SPV where it's, yeah. Okay, so a follow-up question to that. And, and, and you, know, you mentioned the Cosmos uh, Hub uh, spec. Uh, and SDK, and, and of course, there's also Tendermint. Do you think that the that the foundation should play a role in, in coordinating software updates so that um, you know we don't arrive into a situation where there are breaking changes that don't allow for backwards compatibility, and large parts of the network or some big applications on the network can no longer operate? Can you can you um, can you um, yeah? So you know. Yeah. If um, Say that if, if, if a zone is is built uh, using the SDK and using a specific feature set on the SDK, and they have they haven't updated to like the most recent version of the SDK, mm -hmm. uh, and at some point all in bits decides to uh, release a new version of the SDK or even Tendermint Core that would break functionality uh, with the rest of the network. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you think that the ecosystem as a whole needs to coordinate around updating their software uh, regularly enough so that we don't get to a point where whole applications are no longer compatible? Hmm. Um, that's, um, so I think with, we should be designing IBC so that you don't have to coordinate the upgrade of zones at, on like all, uh, all simultaneously. Um, I can imagine there being yeah, potentially a few upgrades in the future, even after we have IBC coin transfers up, where we want the network to, to upgrade simultaneously to, for some new feature, perhaps. Um, ideally, it'll be like a rolling update, so, so it's, it'll stay backwards compatible for as long as possible. Um, so in that sense, I think the Cosmos Hub should be like very um, forward-thinking, long-term thinking, and, um, and, and, and try to stay backwards compatible. Um, but there's yeah, there's just like a lot of considerations here. There's like client software to consider, um, like client protocols to consider, um, like maybe, uh, um, and also there's UX as well. So yeah, for the validators, the various validators or the, or the users, um, like for key management, for example, like the tooling might change. And, you know. So for all of these, I think initially we're, we should probably take it 
um, take a minimalist approach and see how things kind of develop and where the problems arise and then try to address them as it comes up. Um, I think the ICF can play a role in providing a forum for these discussions to happen. Um, uh, I don't think the ICF should be playing a role where it's trying to help coordinate the upgrade across all the zones. You know, I don't think the ICF or AIB should do that. Um, maybe, maybe they can be involved in, in vetting proposals. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, yeah, so maybe like for example in the Cosmos Hub, we might see a proposal that um, describes um, what the upgrade proposal uh, process should be. Um, and then maybe, maybe the ICF or, or Tendermint Inc. can be involved in, in vetting it and, and, and maybe they can you know, kind of publicly state their opinion on it as well. But ultimately, it should be, it should be the validators that are deciding on the process. You know? Okay. Yeah. So regarding IBC, can you give us a brief roadmap there and uh, maybe some indication as to when the Ethereum bridge would be ready? Okay. Um, Hmm. When, yeah. I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> well, let's, just, let's just stay on the IBC then. Uh, yeah. you know, what's the status of the IBC protocol? Yeah, and Here's the tattoo I got. <laughs> um. <laughs> and. Um, I think you were going to ask about this anyways, but I'll just say um, there's one more tattoo I need to get on my head. Um, my only out is that I haven't said when I would get it, so I'll get it eventually, but um, yeah, it'll be somewhere over here. Um, so uh, um, we're, we're trying to get IBC out as soon as possible, and um, one of the things uh, that, that uh, we're going to have soon is... is software, um, or at least API, so that you can develop your application in IBC, um, even before IBC is complete. Um, so that those APIs will be uh, available soon. Um, recently, there was some um, spec changes uh, and some merging that happened with the uh, Agorix um, IBC-like system. And so um, uh, there's more work being done in the spec uh, as we speak. Um, in terms of when it'll be available, uh, like, yeah, I won't say when, but, uh, but we do want to make sure that um, the APIs are available for developing as soon as possible. Um, and uh, we, have, we, have, um, we have weekly uh, uh, calls, so please join those if you're interested in, in tracking the status of it. Um, and also in October in San Francisco, there will be uh, a, uh, a hackathon where uh, we want people to be able to use those uh, IBC APIs for uh, application development. So uh, there's, there's a date, but no promises. So my final question, I want to come back to, to the foundation and, and AIB. So you're, you're president of the foundation and, and CEO of AIB. Do you see a conflict there perhaps moving forward and, you know, do you have any plans there to um, you know, review maybe your involvement in either or of those organizations? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, there is a conflict of interest, um, as in, um, I mean, and I don't think that's bad per se, but uh, it's important to be transparent about it. 
Um, there's, a, there's a conflict of interest in the sense that AIB wants to be this for-profit software company, and, um, and the ICF is supposed to be, um, in spirit, non-profit. So it's, it's actually not a non-profit, technically, but whatever. Um, in the mandate, in, in spirit, it's pretty clearly a non-profit organization. Um, I don't think, but in, like in practice, I don't think this poses a problem because, um, uh, at least from my shoes, yet, um, as in uh, AIB is not, like AIB as in Tenement Inc. Um, is, is, is capitalized, it has enough atoms to sustain itself, um, so it, there's no like immediate need to, um, uh, to, to, to exploit this relationship, um, any you know, uh, there's there's pretty clear like development um, that needs to happen from the um, from the ICF side that AIB is doing, but um, largely it's just we're we're just uh, charging the ICF with software contracts at cost, so there's there's no profit there. Um, and in in terms of like how I believe the ICF ICF should be deploying its funds, um, I really want to make sure that. Uh, it's enabling decentralization, that it's, it's helping uh, many companies in this ecosystem, so like a lot of the companies that are involved here, including validators, um, including you know, uh, all, the, all the projects that are, um, that are uh, part of, of this ecosystem, such as like uh, explorers and, and client software. Um, uh, well, I want to make sure that the ICF is, uh, is, is Growing this whole ecosystem and the Cosmos network is the collection of entities that are, you know, individuals and legal entities, including AIB, but, you know, it must involve but, um, many organizations, including all the validators and everyone here. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's what I want to see happen. I think, uh, I think focusing on that and fo focusing on the expansion of this ecosystem um, as well as building bridges, um, so IBC and um, and bridges to Bitcoin uh, and Ethereum, um, uh, and and, and, and um, finding um, a position in, in the whole crypto ecosystem such that it becomes um, the solution for um, interchain uh, token transfers will will be you know it's it's all we need to do in terms of from the ICS point of view and from AIB's point of view, at least in the short term. In the long run, AIB has, you know, so like, I would, like I was saying, we, we want to develop particular applications, but these applications are not, they're not core, they're not like infrastructural things, they're just um, um, uh, additional applications on top uh, of the ecosystem that, that are uh, among many other applications that uh, people are building. So uh, uh, I don't see, uh, um, uh, in the long run, or even the short run right now, a, a conflict uh, in practice that uh, that um, makes it difficult for me personally. Um, I think there's there are optics involved, so maybe people will uh, will look at what the company's doing and what the ICF is doing, and maybe they'll feel that things are unfair. But I think um, it's it, it is my job uh, to prove and be transparent so that people know that. Uh, there's a, uh, it's that the ICF is is working in accordance with its mandate. Uh, so yeah, I want to make sure that's happening. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent questions.
Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week. 